You're listening to Grace Seal Beach Sermons. If you'd like to know more about our church, go to gracesealbeach.org. One of the kids left their sermon notes from the earlier service up here for me to see, and I didn't know that until just now. All right. Well, if you have a Bible open to Acts 21, we're going to be today, and feel free to pull the sermon out, uh, or you can pull it up on the lo- online if you're watching as well, if that helps you to follow along. Uh, we're continuing our series in the book of Acts, looking at this theme of unity and what it means that the early church moved forward together, even when there's things that they disagreed about. Today, we're going to look at Paul and some of the early Christians and how they disagreed on whether his sacrifice was a good choice or not. And yet how they stayed unified and moved forward together, even though they disagreed. And one of the phrases I've heard often from people as a pastor is, if God would just tell me what to do, I would do it. If God would just tell me what to do, I would do it. If God would just tell me who to marry, I'd marry them. If God would just tell me uh, what college to go to, I'd go to that college. If God would just tell me what career to pursue, I'd pursue that career. If God would just tell me what to do, I would do it. And I generally believe the person that they would, that, that if God just gave them a miraculous sign or vision, this is the path to take, they would choose that path. But often behind that claim, and, and maybe you've said that as well, if God would just show me what to do, I would do it. Behind that claim is a fear or anxiety that if they choose the wrong path, then there's going to be pain and suffering. That they're going to marry the, the quote, wrong person, and they're not going to have a fulfilling marriage. They're going to go to the wrong college and they're not going to fit in or get along. They're going to choose the wrong career, and it's going to be boring, or they're going to be bad at it. Uh, This passage is kind of bad news for that claim, because God told Paul what to do, and it was not a wonderful, delightful journey. (laughs) Paul told, uh, God God told Paul what to do, and the result was not an easy and smooth life, but actually one of, of tremendous sacrifice. In fact, so much so that, that some of the people in Paul's life were like, that couldn't have been God, right? We, we don't think that's what God wants you to do. In fact, we think God has told us the exact opposite. He told us that you were going to go through a tremendous uh, amount of suffering if you go that way. Therefore, you shouldn't do it. Paul says, but that's exactly why God told me to do it. That tension between Paul and the people who love him both hearing the same message from God and drawing dramatically different conclusions about what it means is really going to be a source of a lot of wisdom for you and me in our passage today. What does it mean that that God's calling Paul to something that the people in his life are hesitant about? And how do we understand that for our life today? So we're looking at this uh, passage kind of in three parts. The first part is going to be um, how this tension sort of develops between Paul and his friends. And then the second part will be the choice that Paul himself has to make. And the last part is the unity that comes as a result of, ironically, Paul making a choice that his friends don't agree with. So let's jump into Acts 21, verse 4, and uh, we'll, we'll see how this comes together. Acts 21, 4. Having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. You know, of all the things God should could choose to reveal about why is he talking about uh, travel plans and the consequences. Well, to understand that, you kind of got to understand Acts as a whole. Just as a reminder, if if maybe this is your first Sunday here, Acts is a story of what happened after Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' return to heaven. How did the gospel spread to the ends of the earth? 
The first 10 chapters or so are about how the gospel took root in Jerusalem and the area around it. And then from there, the, the last 18 chapters or so are about the gospel's spread to throughout the Roman Empire. We're getting towards the end of the book of Acts now, and so the gospel's gone, uh, the message of the gospel's gone out throughout the Roman Empire. Paul's been a major source of that, being a major missionary in the, in the early church. And he is uh, taking the gospel not just to people who are ethnically Jewish like him, but to people who are Gentiles, people who are of different ethnicities around the Roman Empire. Now, it's been about 25 years at this point since the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And uh, one of the things that's happened is that the Gentile church has felt a tremendous amount of gratitude and indebtedness to the Jewish community that founded it. And if they didn't feel that, Paul helped them feel that, reminding them that the roots of their faith came from Jerusalem. And as Pastor Tim talked about last week, the Jerusalem church at this point is experiencing a great famine. And so Paul decides this is a great opportunity to build unity across ethnic and racial lines and for the Gentile churches to essentially pay back the debt that they are owed to the Jerusalem church for spreading the gospel and by helping to fund their, uh, their famine relief. And so Paul has gone around to all these different churches, churches like Ephesus, Corinth, Tyre, uh, Ptolemaeus, Caesarea, and collected funds from them in order to bring back to Jerusalem to help support financially the Christians that are there. Um, that's Paul's plan. That's his frame. That's what's happening. And he's ready to go to Jerusalem. He's got, he's got all this planned out. But what, he, what happens is that the Spirit, speaking through different prophets, keeps warning him repeatedly, if you do this, there's going to be a great sacrifice for you personally, Paul. Now, the Spirit doesn't tell him not to do it, but that's what the people around him assume God must mean. Uh, in chapter 20, which is a wonderful chapter where Paul connects with the Ephesian elders and, and talks about what it means to lead a church well and, and would be a wonderful sermon on its own. But in the middle of that, in Acts 20, Paul says, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. I love that phrase. He, he feels constrained by the Spirit. The Spirit is compelling him to do something that on the surface seems foolish to do. Now, there, there's an obvious question here that if our heads are in the clouds, we don't even think about, which is, would we have done this? I mean, doesn't it seem kind of obvious that if your path is leading towards imprisonment, you should take a different path. You should go a different direction. Do something else. There's a lot of cities, Paul. Go to one of them. Why would you choose a path that's so obviously a problem? And why would you make this sort of sacrifice? This is one of the times it's helpful to sort of zoom out and think about your faith a little bit uh, from a distance, especially if you've been a Christian a long time. The idea of making this kind of sacrifice seems obvious in the New Testament, right? This is the idea that we would give up some of our freedoms for the sake of worshiping God seems obvious to us now, but part of why it seems obvious is because of what Paul's written. Paul's the one who helps us understand this theology of our, our personhood, right? That you and I and every person who exists is made in the image of God. And because of that, you're of inestimable worth. Your life matters before God and before people. And because of that, you're able to offer your life as a living sacrifice to God. That you can do things that truly matter for eternity. 
Think about how radically different that is than how the world talks about you, right? This is the world's view of you. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be a bearer of bad news, but it's true. You are a speck in a cold and dark universe. You're an accident of evolution. You don't matter. You don't matter any more than a bug or a log, and you'll be gone tomorrow, right? So eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die, right? That's what the Greek poets said. Uh, you might as well get in some pleasure while you can. Don't let anyone take away your joy because that's all you have, you little speck of dust. Right? That's kind of naturalism. Think about how different that is than what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, I don't have to clutch and grab at my short life here because my life is of immeasurable worth to God. Right? I can think about some of the things that Paul writes, like in Romans 12.1, where he says, Therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Think about the, the theology that's under that. Paul believes that, that your life is of such worth that you can offer it to God and it be pleasing to him. That's really different than what the world says. It says your life doesn't matter at all, so you better grab it for yourself. What are you doing with your one short life? It's running away. Oh no, be anxious. Right? That, that's the world's answer. But, but God's answer is you matter so much. And because you matter so much, you can offer your life as a sacrifice to God. In Acts 20, I, I mentioned um, Paul was talking to the Ephesian elders. He talked about what was in front of him if he went to Jerusalem. This is what he says in verse 24 when he considers that. He says, but I, don't cons- but I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and my ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And towards the end of his life, he'd be able to look back and say that he had made those meaningful choices that had value. In 2 Timothy 4, he says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. It's a sacrificial term from the Old Testament. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul's able to to think of that conceptually as worth giving his life for. Not not to chase after pleasure or or to protect himself from pain, but to to give himself over to something that really matters in life, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because of that, he looks at these warnings that say, don't go to Jerusalem, imprisonment awaits you you there and says, so what? Is the worst thing that's going to happen to me? that I live a life of meaning and purpose that is thwarted by this world? Or are there worse things than dying for my Savior? Well, you say, well, that's great. I'm glad Paul could be such a noble person. He sounds like a saint. Someone should call him St. Paul and name cities in Minnesota after him. What, what does it have to do with us? Like, I, I don't, I don't want to be a saint. I barely want to be a good person. What, what, what is this? How do we apply this? How do we live this out? What does this matter for me? Well, I think what's really interesting in this passage, one of the things that's really interesting in this passage to me, is how the people around Paul respond to this level of self-sacrifice. You know, there, there is no one in this passage who's like, Paul, that's great that you want to go to prison. In fact, the people around him, which are, which are not bad people, right? These are, these are wonderful Christians, right? They see his self-sacrifice as a threat, as something they're concerned about, as something that they want to rein in. And, and I want to look at that tension because I think it's really helpful for you because I think you're going to experience that same thing on, on both sides, right? Maybe sometimes you'll be Paul. Maybe sometimes you'll be the people that tried to thwart Paul. But, but that tension of what do we do about other people's sacrifice 
And how do we respond when other people don't like our sacrifices for God? I think it's transferable regardless of the level of sacrifice. Now, probably none of us will knowingly choose to go to prison for our faith because we're such noble people. But there are probably going to be times that you want to make a sacrifice because of your love of God or because you feel like God's calling you towards it or because you think it's, it's worth giving your life to. And there might be some people who aren't super enthusiastic about it. And how you respond to them, I think, can be really helped by this passage. So, so let's keep going here uh, in verse 10. Um, after Paul leaves the city of Tyre, he goes to Ptolemais. He stays there for a day, then he goes on to Caesarea. And that's where we're going to pick up here in verse 10. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down for Judea. Just a, a quick note. Um, Agabus is, I don't know, I thought he was maybe the, the most positive figure in the New Testament that I've never heard anyone name their kids after. Because in Acts 8, we meet Agabus. He's a prophet who says, hey, there's a, pro- there's a famine coming. We really need to get ready for it. And he was right. And then we see him here again in Acts 21. He has another prophecy. He's right again. Seems like a good guy. Seems like someone that we should listen to. This is his prophecy in verse 11. Coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, I just, I just want you to look in your own Bible. Does Agabus say, therefore, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem? No. He just says, if you do, this is the cost you're going to incur. But his friends in verse 12 draw their own meaning out of this. It says, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. The we here means that Luke, who's writing the book of Acts, includes himself in this. Right? He, he's with the group that says, hey, you can't do this. Don't do this. We don't want you to sacrifice this much. You're, this is too costly to you and to the early Christian movement. Why do his friends try to stop him? Now, we usually focus on the positive role that Christian friends have in our life, and we should. That's the normal thing that we see in the Bible. The people you surround yourself with are going to deeply impact your faith, or lack thereof. That's what the Proverbs are full of. That's what Psalm 1 says. That's what we see throughout the Bible, really, is that show me your friends and I'll show you your destiny. That's why it's so important who you choose to have as a roommate, who you choose to hang out with, who you choose to marry, especially. The people that we surround ourselves with shape who we become as people. But what I love about this passage, and what's a little unusual about this passage, is that it says that sometimes even those good and godly friends in our life try to steer us towards safe zones away from sacrifice. The community sometimes will, will try to steer us away from uh, offering our bodies as a living sacrifice, to use, to use the Romans 12 language, and towards a place of self-indulgence and towards protection and self-protection. What's unusual and, and I think really helpful about this passage is that it shows us that we can't outsource these decisions about sacrifice to the community. These are things that we have to decide in our own hearts before God. They're not debating what God said to them. This is not a, an argument of God said A and then not A. They're arguing about what to do with it. Is it worth walking into sacrifice for or not? So again, I said that you and I probably aren't going to face this sort of extraordinary level of prophetic words or of uh, sacrifice, but we might have tensions like this play out today. Have you ever felt like someone tried to talk you out of doing something remarkable for God? Or maybe you've tried to talk people out of doing something remarkable for God? 
a few years ago, uh, we had the executive director of our denominations missions organization come and speak. And uh, Dave's a great guy, Dave Giles. He's uh, just finished 23 years as the executive director of Encompass. And so he's seen a lot of things that go into why people become missionaries, why they succeed as missionaries, why they fail. And he gets asked a lot, hey, are, are we seeing young adults want to become missionaries? And what are some of the barriers there? He said this is a question he gets a lot from concerned people his age. Dave's in his, his mid-60s. Uh, like, are, are we seeing people still interested in going to the mission field? And he said, I, I like to quiz them of what they think the barriers are. And he said, people my age tend to think, oh, is it student loans? No, it's not student loans. Is it, uh, is it secularism? No, it's not secularism. Is it young adults being selfish? He says, well, that's kind of a judgmental question, but no, that's not it. Um, he said, you know what the biggest barrier to, to people going on the mission field is today? He said, it, it's Christian parents who don't want their kids taking their grandkids halfway around the world. <laughs> and uh, I felt the air go out of the room when Dave said that here a few years ago. And I was just like, oh, I wonder how that's going to go over. But Dave, who's a gracious guy, said, you know, I'm, I'm a grandparent, and my daughter took our kids halfway around the world to be a missionary, and I didn't like it either, and I'm a director of a missions organization, right? Um, it's amazing how we use phrases, maybe even we, we try to sound pious in using them. We say phrases like, have you really thought about what you'd be giving up? What about your future? Are you sure this is worth it? Now, I'm not here referring to, to helping people conceptualize poorly conceived ministry ideas, right? Like, I'm not here talking about us helping a reality test whether something is really from God or, or whether we've heard God's word accurately. I'm here more talking about the selfish thing that we sometimes do to try to get people off of the sacrifice that God has called them to or that they want to offer themselves before God. Um, verse 12 says that they urged him not go up to Jerusalem when they heard about the risks that were waiting him there. Now, it doesn't say what their specific arguments were, but I assume they were thinking about the costs that would be incurred by Paul and the costs that would be incurred by them, what, it, what they would lose by Paul going to prison, instead of thinking about what God's call in Paul's life involved. Um, I wonder if one of the people even said, you know, Paul, it's going to create a lot of division if you go. Maybe you should just stay here for a while. Let's just figure it out in unity. But unity is never an excuse for avoiding sacrifice and mission. Well, the pressure's on Paul here to make a decision. The ball's clearly in his court. What's he going to do? Is he going to sort of outsource this decision of faith to other people? Or is he going to go with what he feels clearly that, that God has called him to do? Well, if you think Paul's going to abdicate responsibility, you haven't read much in the New Testament. Uh, Paul's answer in verse 13 is, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. By the way, I, I went up and looked it up again. I was like, weeping and don't go breaking my heart. Wasn't that like a song? <laughs> Uh, that, that doesn't sound like, like a, a Bible verse. That sounds like a lyric. Um, but that's the literal translation of what is in the Greek here. Um, and it's, it's, it's worth noting um, because essentially what Paul is saying is don't use your emotions to try to fracture my decision-making. Remember, in the, in the Bible, the heart is the seat of decision-making. It's the seat of the will. It's, it's the, in, the, in the concept of how the New Testament talks about the person, you know, in, in our culture, we think of the heart as our emotional center, and it is that, but in the Bible, the heart is more than that. It's, it's also the place where, metaphorically, where we decide what we're about, what we're going to live for, what we're going to do. 
And so Paul is saying, don't use your tears to try to break apart or break into pieces my decision. Don't try to manipulate, use your emotions to, to manipulate what is a good and godly decision. He says, I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul hears their objections for what they are. They're, they're not good counsel. They're fear-based reasoning. They're reasoning based on what they're concerned that they're going to lose. And so Paul admirably chooses to obey God rather than keeping the counsel of his friends. Paul needed to make this decision for himself. If he had chosen to stay just because people wanted him to stay, that wouldn't have led to greater unity. It wouldn't have led to their edification. It would have just led to resentment. It would have led to, to a unhelpful and unnecessary division between him and the community there. Rather, Paul, like you, had to choose whether he was going to do this himself. You and I have to make these same sort of decisions on our own. Will we choose to follow through on the sacrifices God's called us to? Or will we try to outsource that and blame that on other people around us? i got to be honest, giving this message to Americans kind of feels weird, right? Like the last thing most Americans need is to be encouraged to be more individualistic and to ignore other people's opinions. And I've been deeply afraid that on the patio today, someone's going to come over to me and say, I really like that. You know, everyone's been telling me not to do X, but you just told me to follow my heart, and I'm going to do that. And I'm like, no, no, that's not what I'm saying. Um, this is not a passage about following your heart. It is a passage that says that you are ultimately responsible to God, just as I am, for choices of sacrifice that you're going to make or not make. You, you can't say, well, other people told me not to, so I didn't. Other people didn't want me to, so I didn't. Right? This is your choice before God. We see this most clearly, obviously, in the person of Jesus. Think about all the ways that Jesus' friends tried to stop him from doing what God had called him to do and specifically what God had called him to sacrifice to do. Think about all the times in the Gospels that Peter and the other apostles, when they heard Jesus predict his crucifixion, would say, no, you'll never do that. No, don't go there. Right? No, no. Right? But Jesus persistently and lovingly endured the course set before him for our sake and for our benefit forever. In the same way, you and I are called to follow Jesus' example, not to ignore our friends or community, both Jesus and Paul live lives of tremendous community with people around them. But to individually make our own decisions of sacrifice, even when people around us are anxious about them. Now, um, sometimes we talk about sacrifice in such grandiose ways. We're talking about the cross, talking about Paul going to prison. That it's hard to think of how to connect that with our lives. I try to think of a couple examples um, that, that might play out for you. One is, um, you might... Some of you might be feeling like you're called to a life of singleness. You feel like, for whatever reason, God's put it on your heart that uh, you, you don't want to follow the path of marriage and that you want to choose a path where you can intentionally live a life of single celibacy for the sake of the kingdom. Um, you're not ready to become a nun or a monk, but, but you feel like God's made you and wired you in such a way that you can show the breadth of God's love to a wider variety of people if you choose a life of singleness. But you've told that to some people, and the response has been, People, even Christian people saying, well, but don't you want to get married? Don't you want to have kids? Who's going to take care of you when you're old? And they've tried to sort of walk you back from a calling that God's placed on your life. Or others of you have felt a, a nudging to serve God in greater ways than you've done before, or a return to a way that you'd served God in before. You want to volunteer in the Grace Kids program or in the youth group, or you want to uh, consider going on a short-term mission trip. 
And there are people in your life who are, don't like that. And they say, well, but what about, what about the trips we have planned? What about pickleball? What about all, all the things that we like to do together? Um, you don't want to do that, really. No, 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 you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. Or maybe some of you are pricked by Tim's message last week on generosity, and you feel like you, you want to consider how to give more, to, especially to Christians around the world who are suffering. And you feel like that's something that God's really laid on your heart. But then people in your life are like, well, you, you already do so much. You already give so much. That's really, that's for you to enjoy. God will want you to, to have a happy life and enjoy that, not to sacrifice for others. Now, my point isn't to argue for giving or serving or celibacy, though those are all good things. But we can talk about all those another time. What I'm interested in more in this passage is, what do you do with that gap between what other people are telling you you should sacrifice for God and what your conscience tells you should, you should sacrifice for God? Are, are you someone who just says like, well, you're probably right. Are you easily talked out of that? Do you say, well, yeah, you're, you're, probably, you're probably right. That's, I, I probably went too far with that. Yeah, you know, if that makes you uncomfortable, you know, you, you're, you're probably right instead of me. Or are you someone who has not an obstinance, but a, a holy determination to follow the course set before you by God? Now, um, I was trying to think of sort of how this might play out and, and why this plays out in our lives. Like, why do we do these things to one another where even if we're Christians, sometimes we're, we're made uncomfortable by other people's sacrifice? Because, you know, we put ourselves in Paul's shoes, but more often, perhaps we're like the, the Christians around Paul who, who didn't delight in his sacrifice but felt threatened by it. And I was thinking about, I don't know if you've ever tried to eat healthy for a while and then go to a social event, and someone's like, hey, we're glad you're here. Do you want some, you know, deep fried mac and cheese? And you're like, I'm trying to avoid all the words in that sentence, so no. <laughs> and sometimes people are like, oh, that's really cool. That's good for you. And then other times, they, what do they do? They say, no, have some. Right? Have, have some, right? No, I put a brownie on it now. Eat it. Uh, I know you're not supposed to do food metaphors so close to noon, but if you're made hungry by deep fried mac and cheese and brownies, you have a problem. Um, no, why is it that our anxieties or our insecurities sometimes cause us to want to pull other people back from sacrifice for God? Right? Like, we're like, no, 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 I, I feel like I should do that and I'm not, so you need to not do it either. Let, let's eat this deep fried mac and cheese together. Right? Um, well, in these last couple of verses, I, I want you to see actually how ironically this pushes us towards unity. Because we think that as long as we just give in and do what everyone else around us wants us to do, we'll be un more unified. But, but the Bible actually shows that the opposite happens. When Paul differentiates himself and says, no, I'm going to do this, even though you don't want me to, I'm going to do this, there's a theology that undergirds this that enables him and the people around him to stay connected. That's what happens in verse 14. He says, since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After, the, after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. I find these verses fascinating because so often in my life experience, maybe yours as well, when people disagree on the path forward, they don't stay together, right? If people don't agree on how life should function, sometimes they can't stay in relationship. But what we see here is Paul and the people who love him deeply concerned about what this involves. And yet, because they believe that God is sovereign, that he's in control, that's what they mean by God's will being done, that they're able to stay connected even when they disagree on what to do next. 
In fact, they're so connected that Luke says, and we went with them to Jerusalem. There's a lot of times that Luke narrates things that happens in the third, third person voice, meaning that Luke doesn't participate in himself, but he hears about him. In this case, Luke says, no, I, I went with them into the trap. That's fascinating to me. I thought you were against this. I thought you didn't like this plan, right? Well, maybe, but we're still connected. We're still committed to being unified in community together. All right. Well, we, we got to end there. A couple questions for you as we finish here. Well, think about this story if you were Paul. What would you have done? Do you, do you have this sort of holy determination to, to move forward even when people who love you and love God are scared and say not to? Or are you kind of easily bumped off course? You might talk to God about that this week. God, am, am I the sort of person who would move forward with what you've called me to do in spite of what people who love me might say? Or am I someone who too quickly abdicates that responsibility and puts it on other people's shoulders? Second question you might ask before God is, um, am, I, am I pulling people back from sacrificing to God? Am, am I sort of robbing people of the service they want to offer to God because of my anxieties or my insecurities or my fears? Am I trying to, to make the Christian life easier for other people in a way that, that doesn't help them and doesn't honor God? This is especially a question for those of you who are parents. Are, are you trying to, to protect your kids in such a way that, that you're keeping them from living a life of discipleship to Jesus? And you might look at this passage and, and consider some of the arguments that Paul's friends made to him and say, like, would, would I have made those same sorts of arguments to people in my life that I love? Or going forward, do I want to be someone who, who encourages sacrifice to Jesus rather than tries to talk people out of it? Well, I hope that uh, for you and for me that as God calls you to great things, as God calls people in our church to great things, that we would be a voice of encouragement to them. Not, not to to run into foolish decisions when we can help people make better ones, but that we'd encourage people to run into faithful decisions, that, that they would hear God's voice and respond to it, that they would do great things for God, not because, uh, that they would do great things for God because of their desire to offer their lives as a sacrifice before him. And that we would cheer them on, not, not responding out of insecurity or fears, but out of a shared hope in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. God, this passage uh, is, is beautiful, but it requires so much wisdom on how to apply well. Um, There's so many times that we try to figure out what you've called us to, and, and it doesn't seem as clear as it is here. And we need you, God. We need you every hour to show us what you're calling each of us to in our lives. God, I pray for the people who are here um, who feel a sense of burden, you know, because they, they feel that, that you're calling them to something, and, and they know it's going to disappoint people around them. It might disappoint a spouse or a parent or a friend. It might be something that, that you've laid on their heart really deeply and that they want to do, uh, but they're scared about how people around them are going to respond. God, I pray that you would give them a sense of holy determination to follow you wherever you lead them. Um, God, I pray for, for parents who are here, maybe who, who feel threatened by, by their kids making some of those choices, or spouses who, who feel like they're... Um, uncomfortable with what, what their spouse wants to do. God, I pray that you would give us a greater view of the value of eternity and a smaller view of the inconveniences of this life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.